Paul instructs Timothy to encourage believers to pray for all people, including those in positions of authority, and to live peaceful and quiet lives. It also addresses the role of men and women in worship. In a text that might stoke controversy in today's climate, Paul teaches that men should lead in prayer and teaching, while women should learn in quietness and submission. He then concludes this section by emphasizing the importance of faith and good deeds in the Christian life. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Monday, February 13th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. And I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help congregations and missionaries spread the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining the conversation this morning and, and helping us get right into Chapter 2 is my guest, the Reverend Dr. Brian Saunders, President of the Iowa District East of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. Good morning, Pastor Saunders. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you. Or perhaps I should say welcome back, brother. The last time you were on, you were uh, with my predecessor, which was about the same time last year, uh, Pastor Brady Finnern, who's now host of Concord Matters on Saturday. He's also joined you and your peers as a district president. Uh, but from what I understand, you are now in your fifth term as district president, and since this is the first time I'm having you on the show, I'd love for you to share with me and the listeners at home a little bit about yourself and your ministry to the Saints and Shepherds of Iowa District East. Yeah, Brady uh, uh, has joined the Council of Presidents um, since President Fondo retired, and uh, I'm very grateful that the that the Convention of North Minnesota elected him. He's a fine, fine young man, and good theologian, and I think he has a great future in that leadership role in the church. Um, about me, uh, there's really nothing terribly exciting. Um, 64 years old, been married to my wife uh, 45 years, and uh, we have four children, 12 grandchildren, um, Ordained. I was a college baseball coach before I went to the seminary. I coached at St. John's in Winfield, Kansas, then on to the seminary. And then my first call was to Holy Cross in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for a few years, and then to Our Savior in Muscatine, Iowa, for 18 years. And then in 2009, I was elected to be district president. And as district president, I was also uh, called by our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Cedar Falls, Iowa, to be their associate pastor. So that's my dual role that I hold uh, at this point. Okay, well, great. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show. Um, today we're going to be getting into uh, some sticky territory, So, but I know that you're up for it with your many years of pastoral guidance and, uh, and theologing, the, theology, rather. Um, uh, so let's go ahead and begin, though. I'm going to invite you to start us off with prayer, because we're going to need it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you have sent your word in the flesh, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, suffered and died in Jerusalem, rose from the dead and ascended on high, and has given to us at Pentecost your true word, recorded by the prophets and the apostles, 
by the evangelists, and we thank you for that word, for it is eternal truth. And in that, we have the very means by which you seek and save the lost, as well as feed the found. And we pray that we as a church would continue to honor that and recognize that and address the culture in which we live, even if it is contrary to our Christian confession, for the sake of bringing that saving word to those who need to hear it. And we, the church, may we never be driven or guided by a cultural norm, but by scriptural norm. And when scripture speaks to us, it's truth. May we have the courage to follow through with it by not only proclaiming it, by letting it guide our practice in life. As we enter into this study today, may you speak through that word for the sake of its hearers. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we dig in and read anything from chapter two, uh, catch us up a little bit. For those who might have missed the program yesterday where we began this brand new book, The Letter of St. Paul to Timothy, uh, just catch us up. What What is the background that will help us understand where his argument is going from here? Uh, Paul's letter to Timothy uh, is... Well, from my from my uh, seat that I sit in, it's probably the closest thing that we have as a epistle for a district president. Uh, Timothy was a pastor in the city of of um, of Ephesus. Uh, he didn't grow up in Ephesus, but that's kind of his home headquarters. And Paul then brought him into a responsibility of overseeing the pastors in Asia Minor. And that's really kind of what a district president does. He oversees the roster of his district, which includes pastors, uh, congregations, and and all uh, commission church workers as well. And so Paul is giving uh, guidance to Paul, uh, Timothy, um, per- apparently fairly young in his uh, years of experience, so that he may uh, assist the pastors and the church workers of Asia Minor in retaining the truth so they can proclaim the truth. And he writes that both to uh, to Timothy and to another uh, pastoral epistle uh, entitled to Titus. Yes, and we're going to be covering both Second Timothy and Titus over the next month or so. Um, but right, so we come to this section here. This is what we would call chapter two. Remember, folks at home, the chapters aren't inspired. They just help us navigate the text here. So Paul's thought is really continuing from the previous uh, paragraph, if not the whole first part of the letter. And he's telling him in verse 18, chapter one, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies you previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And he talks about people who have made a shipwreck of their faith And he ends the previous section by saying something uh, pretty striking. He says, I have handed over to Satan these people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he talks about the reality that there are those in the church that will resist the faith. And at some point you have to give them what they're asking for, but not as a means to losing them to the faith, but rather that they may learn uh, to turn to God. And so in this next section, which we're going to divide up into chunks, uh, we have, uh, he begins to talk about worship, public worship. And so I'm going to read the first four verses, and then I'll throw it back to you. 
to see uh, how we can, you know, divide this up. Here we go. This is chapter two from the English Standard Version. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the first four verses. So, brother, he, he says something which you would think is not uh, controversial at all, and yet in some ways is controversial, especially when it talks about kings and people who are in high positions in our politically divided atmosphere. We see here that Paul is urging prayers for all people, especially folks like that. Uh, take us through that. If you take into account who the emperor, the Roman emperor was at the time that Paul is writing this, especially uh, offering prayers for the kings, that's Nero. Uh, Nero was not a friend of the Christian church. Uh, some would even historically claim that he was not um, hitting on all eight cylinders, uh, if, if you know what I mean. And that uh, Paul is, is, is rightly asking for prayers for him so that uh, in verse 2, when he says live peaceful, it's actually undisturbed. The Greek word there is, is better translated that we can live undisturbed and peaceful lives. And that is one of the reasons that the kingdom of the left exists under God's command, so that they may uh, not only maintain roads for travel, but peaceful context in which the, um, the missionaries, uh, the apostles, uh, the evangelists can travel and uh, be protected to speak forth what they believe is true and to do so without uh, disturbance. And so it, it does well for us to pray for those who oversee that element of our culture, uh, the laws that protect us and allow us to travel and allow us to do what it is that we're given to do in proclaiming the gospel, being undisturbed doing it and being able to uh, do so with, with peacefulness um, which allows us then to to give witness to not only what we say, but how we live. Those godly and, and holy lives give a, a pretty stout witness as well as what we say. And the goal and the purpose, of course, is that in and through that, uh, hearers may hear and seers may see who Christ is from us and uh, coming to the knowledge of the truth, be saved. Right. I mean, I think I'm glad that you brought up the fact that Nero is in view here, at least in the contemporary aspect, as he's writing this. You know, people who would have first encountered these letters, I mean, Timothy, of course, but obviously spread to other Christians, they would be saying, wait a minute, we're supposed to pray for for all kings. But it's more than that. He doesn't just say prayer in terms of like, well, let's let's make sure that we have good leadership. He actually says supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and even thanksgivings be made for all people. So it it even goes beyond. I think you might agree that beyond just saying, "Well, we hope that uh, you know the, the the emperor Nero, who's got a you know few crayons short of a box, uh, we hope that he'll not be uh, so so horrible in the way that he's acting." 
because for those who don't know, I mean, he, he basically destroyed the reputation of his family um, and he uh, ended his life by taking his own life uh, with the revolts that came around 68 AD. So, so we have this guy who's very unstable, but then there are things in terms of supplications, um, things that we could ask for, uh, prayers, you know, petitions to God, intercessions, right? Praying to God on behalf of people, including the emperor, praying that God would soften their hearts. But then thanksgivings? How can we give thanks to un ungodly rulers? I think that is where it would have been troublesome to the first hearers, but in some ways troublesome to us today. Well, we certainly can give thanks for when they do the things that they're supposed to do correctly, even if they don't understand why they're doing them correctly. Uh, if, if he would have maintained uh, passability for for the travelers, they can give thanks for that. And I think that is what is missing. Well, I think has always been missing, but is what is especially missing as we encounter the political atmosphere we have today. It seems to be an all or nothing. We find it very difficult to look at the uh, quote unquote other side and be able to find places where either they are doing the right things, regardless of the reasons, or where we can see God working through them for the good of his people. We're, we're so intent, I think, for people who are politically minded to just bolster our own side, regardless of that, those sins, and demean the other side, regardless of the times where they might be effective in uh, accomplishing what we would like to happen. Yeah, I have no access to the president of our nation, but I have access to God who oversees him. And so it does well for us to to put up intercessions on his behalf that God would lead individuals who do have access to the political leaders, whether it's a president or Congress, governor or, or so forth, that those who do have um, influence can be of sound mind and body to uh, to help that leader to do the right things at the right time. I like that. That's a good phrase, right? Because as you said, we have access to God who controls all things, right? So we, we know his boss, which is a good thing to keep in mind. And in verse three, he says, this is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, but he gives us a reason why. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so I just think, and again, I'm thinking not necessarily of our friends or fellow Christians because you know, it's easy to pray for them. But when we're asked to pray for people who might be against us, for our enemies, for those who are politically uh, and philosophically opposed to God's message, to those who hate Christ, why would we pray for them? Why would we intercede on behalf of them? Well, pastor, their prayers aren't heard by God. We're, we're told that, you know, prayers are only, only through Christ are heard. And so, therefore, we have that duty, don't we? Because he desires even the people we don't like to become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, of course, we have the duty. There's no question about that. We also have the need in the sense that if, um, if, the, if the leadership does not uh, ingratiate Christianity and its message and acts in an adverse way to the Christian faith, that it's extremely difficult for that word uh, to, to go out. And we're, we're praying for the sake of salvation of all people, that the only means by which salvation takes place can happen, and that's knowledge of the truth. And so um, the, uh, the prayer is, is, is certainly a command. It's also a need.
That's right. We're not doing it just to check off a box. We genuinely share the will of God that, you know, we want these people to come to faith. So, so folks at home, imagine in your head the person who you think is the most against Christianity, the person who has done the most to get in the way of the message of Christ, the one who has done the most to give us uh, obstacles to spreading the gospel. And once you have that person in mind, maybe take that anger you feel and redirect it toward prayer because you know it, it is very difficult to hate someone for whom you're praying and that's what we have here. We have prayer because God wants them, no matter where they are, he wants them to be saved, and we should want that too. There's a little more to this section, which I'm going to add to our conversation, verses 5 through 7. He says, because or for, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Brother, help us understand that reasoning, right? We pray because there's one God, one mediator. What does he mean by this? Well, there's uh, only one access to God the Father, and that's through his Son. And Access to the Son is only available because the Holy Spirit has taken us to that Son or brought the Son to us in the means of grace, that we may have a full understanding of who He is. Uh, that um, the fact that He wants all men to be saved to come to the knowledge of truth. That that Greek word there is fascinating. It's epignosin, which means an an over over the top knowledge, uh, not just a rudimentary, uh, not not something you can give as an answer to a quiz but an intimate uh, understanding uh, created by the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is. And that's the one who takes our prayers to the Father. That's the one who took our sins and showed them to the Father on his flesh. And the Father took out his punishment on his Son in our place. So apart from Christ, we don't know who God is. We have no access to him. And... uh, so the one mediator is the man, Christ Jesus, giving testimony there to his human nature as well as his divine nature. And in that human and divine uh, um, union, he gave himself as a ransom. And he has informed us about that at the proper time. And uh, that's what Paul has now been given to preach and to teach. And that's what the office of the holy ministry is given to do. It's uh, given the responsibility of preaching and teaching Christ Jesus. Paul said the content of our sermons is Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's a rather short sermon, but it's a pretty full one. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and uh, well, Paul substantiates the fact that this, this is the truth that we're talking about all the way back in, uh, in was it verse 4? The knowledge of the truth. Paul's speaking it. That's what pastors do. They speak the truth. Well, I love how you point out that the word knowledge there from the uh, from the Greek, it's a epinosin. Um, we hear like kind of gnosis, gnosis in there, which is knowledge, but more than just like information, as you pointed out, it's it's really about the process, right? Come to know. Epinosin is to, you know, come to understand. It's not about just having the right answers on your lips, 
but experiencing the faith in such a way that you have come into the knowledge of the truth, which, of course, can only happen through our witness, through the word, even through our intercessions, which is why it's so important that we make these intercessions on behalf of all people. And so there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Yeah, he gives this nice little uh, sermonette here uh, because we, we get, of course, the focus on the unity of the Trinity. We have the focus on there only being one God. We have the two natures of Christ here and the man who also gave himself as a ransom. And then in verse 7, we kind of get some classic Paul, don't we? You know, he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, and then parenthetically, the editors have decided, he says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Uh, normally that's the kind of thing we get within the first paragraph of Paul's letters. It kind of waits till here, but Paul is frequently having to defend himself, even amongst the other apostles, as being a true apostle, isn't he, brother? Well, Paul had a rather uh, shaky start uh, as a Pharisee, a very popular Pharisee, and quite energetic one for the synagogue and the synagogue rulers. And the rest of the apostles were keenly aware of that. And his his seminary, if you put it that way, uh, he was the only one in the class. So there wasn't classmates to give uh, testimony as to his his conversion other than t until he got to Ananias and on the road to Damascus. And so, um, yeah, there was going to be some suspicion and he probably was going to need to um, reconfirm that for people who might thought he was trying to weasel his way into the, to the inner core of the Christian church so he can destroy it from the inside. And which was the last thing on Paul's mind, of course, um, mm -hmm. But it's hard to teach the truth as hard and as long as he did if you're trying to weasel in and do something unseemly. Absolutely. You know, we have, of course, we have access to his conversion event, so to speak, from the scriptures. But they didn't have that. They just had his word. And so he's frequently pointing to the fact that he's doing all of this. He's called to this role even, not because he's just chosen it, but because God has chosen him. And that the message he has is not one that he has invented but it is one that comes from God. And I think that's probably important, but the reason why I wonder if he doesn't get to that argument until this point is because just as we think of all of the objections there might be to giving prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people now, I imagine it was just as troublesome then. I mean, when he gives this message of, you know, you need to be praying for everybody, Undoubtedly, he, as a contrapuntal, right, as he, he's as a counterpoint, he's thinking that they're going to be like, oh, no, this is just Paul's message. Uh, but no, no, this is from God. And I bring that up because what we have here really is a message of, of God, of people being equal before God, right? God died for all people, for every man, woman, child, all ages, all times, anyone, everyone, however you want to say it. Paul says here in verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. That's not a message that would have been completely accepted by some of the early Christians, especially those of the Jewish faith. Am, am I right? Well, sure. The, the wall that was built uh, around the, the, um, 
the Jewish faith, uh, that's not broken down so easily. And the the acceptance of Gentiles we see in the book of Acts was a, a systematic process of getting to the Gentiles, of sending out uh, Peter and, and John to verify that the Holy Spirit has actually worked amongst the Gentiles too. And while the apostles might have picked up on that, the average uh, Jewish convert to the Christian faith would have been a little more leery, probably, that that uh, this word, this Messiah, uh, was for more than just them, just the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's uh, one of the reasons that Galatians uh, redefines who uh, or, or, or confirms who the real descendants of Abraham are, and those who believe in the the triune God that Abraham believed in. And so, yeah, I suppose that transition from Jew only to the world was a little slower than the first century was used to. Sure. Um, now, as a uh, district president and a man who's been in the holy ministry for quite a while, uh, I do want to ask a probing question. Are you a lifelong Lutheran, brother? Yes. Okay, so I am not, for what it's worth. So as a lifelong Lutheran also, um, do you see some of these similar, uh, I guess, sins within uh, our tribe today, within the church today? Do you see people kind of putting up that hedge where, you know, forgiveness is for a certain sect of people and maybe it's caused us to not reach out in the, some of the ways we should? Do you see any of that? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I don't really run into any membership in our district who would who would think that i think there's um the realization that christ came to save came to save sinners and every single human being that's conceived is a sinner and that there's a need for the gospel to be brought not just to our uh, our ears but to the ears of everybody and i don't know that i have run into anything in our district where people would would ignore that reality and simply say that um, the saving gospel is only for a certain type of people. It's it's for a certain type, all right. It's lost and condemned. Sure, and, sure. Oh, absolutely. I definitely believe that that's on their lips, right? That we have this desire to go and save all people, and that's the message of the gospel. I just wonder if by sometimes the ways we go about spreading the gospel sometimes inadvertently puts this up. You know, that's, I guess, what I'm saying here. Well, um, the way we go about doing it is really defined by our vocations. Sure. So, uh, wh- Tell me about that. whoever, well, whoever our vocation puts us in connection with, that's the individual whom we have opportunity to give witness by what we say and what we do. And um, so, if you're a farmer, you're not going to spend a lot of time downtown Cedar Rapids. Uh, if if you're a businessman at uh, Rockwell Collins, an engineer, you're not going to be spending a lot of time at the local co-op. So wherever it is that you you are, uh, husband, wife, parent, uh, neighbor, uh, student, teacher, uh, wherever the, the vocation in life that you have been given puts you in interaction with folks, with people, there's your opportunity to by the way you live, by that holiness and godliness from verse 2, and by the things that we say, that knowledge of truth from verse 4 is the means by which Christ seeks and saves the lost and feeds the found. 
Yes, absolutely. Excellent. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to be able to, as St. Paul says here, go first to prayer for all those in our midst, um, all those who God's put into our life, and even those he hasn't, right? Because he says for us to put supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. You know, our, our brother, you said that, you know, you don't have access to the president of the United States, but you do have um, access to the God who's over him. And I, I just love that word. I think that's going to become part of my own uh, collection of colloquialisms because it's so true. Uh, but that's it, right? We still go to God, though, even for those people who may not have been put into our lives. And then, of course, for those who have through our vocations, as the dear president here says, uh, witness to them in the ways that God has given us to witness. Uh, folks, uh, we're going to keep on going with this conversation. When we get back, we're going to talk about the role of men and women in worship and men and women in worship and how that differs. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Brian Saunders, Pat, president of the Iowa District East of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Folks, if you have any thoughts or questions about today's show, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com or drop me a message on Facebook. Mostly, I just want to take this time to tell you I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. Remember, share us with your friends and family. You and they can catch us on the airwaves, on demand at kfuo.org. If you'd like to listen to us on the go, you can download the KFUO app, or you can subscribe to the program using your favorite podcasting platform. Man, there are so many different ways to engage with us, and I hope that you're able to find one that suits you. It means the world to me that you're here. Thank you for telling your friends and family about the program. All right. Now, uh, President Saunders, before the break, we were just kind of finishing up the first half of our chapter. Just, you know, you gave us some great words about sharing the faith within our vocation. Paul here is talking about making sure that we are praying for and giving thanks for when necessary and interceding for all people, uh, regardless of where they are and what we are to them and they to us. Uh, anything else in that section before we dive into the next part? Well, the next one's kind of the nitty-gritty of the chapter. I think so, too. Let's get into it. So we're going to read verses 8 through 10. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, 
not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, we'll stop there. That little chunk there, we get two different things, right? The men praying with holy hands, and then the women dressing modestly, but in more specifically, dressing themselves with good works. Uh, take that apart for us. Help us understand. Yeah, uh, verse 8 uh, is not necessarily giving us a physical posture by which we pray, although there's nothing wrong with raising your hands, if you pray, I suppose. Uh, but hands are a an instrument uh, within our created order, within our created physical being, uh, by which we express. And they can be used uh, in in uh, in harmful ways. They can harm. Uh, they can they can uh, further uh, they can further engender a, a dispute. And that's not how we pray. Uh, we pray with uh, hands that are holy hands, hands that are empty, hands that are, that are, that are um, in need of being filled, uh, beggars before God. And a beggar doesn't um, look at somebody else and express some sort of dissatisfaction and anger. It asks for what verse one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 was doing. It requests, inter- intercedes, it gives thanksgiving for everyone. And you had brought it up earlier, if there's someone with whom we have a dispute, the best thing to do is to pray for them. You'll find that your anger dissipates rather quickly, and you're asking God to do something which is of benefit to them and to you, to change their heart, to change our heart, so that there's a better relationship. So um, that's that's a good cause for men in in the uh, divine service, is to to keep that perspective. Uh, Then it moves to the relationship of the women in the congregation, um, which certainly would include the wives of of uh, of these men, and if not, it it uh, gives a general um, a, a general description to the role of women in the presence of men in the divine service, and it talks about that which does not violate. Um, one's um, ranking, if we want to use that word. We'll get into it more in verse 11. But in the in the order of creation, God has established a rank. And, and that's not unusual. We do it in the military. We do it in the, in the, in the public uh, world, uh, in, the, in the political world. We, we do it in our, in our uh, places of vocation. Rank is, is how you keep order. And God establishes that in divine service. And so what he's asking in verse 9 and 10 is that a woman exercise her, her piety in a manner that does not overshadow the men, but recognizes that uh, she is um, from man to be man's helpmate. Well, there's certainly some cultural aspects going on, too. You know, in this time, there's this, uh, especially within, I guess, the the Roman uh, community, the Roman, what would we call it, culture. That's what I'm looking for. In the Roman culture, as women continue to get uh, more authority, uh, probably undoubtedly influenced by Christianity's inroads as we continue, and there were other groups too, proclaiming that, you know, people, man, woman, free, slave, Jew, Greek, 
are equal in their status before God, you know, the idea that Christianity is pushing forth is that people are equal in respect to their positions before God. But what was happening on the, let's say, secular scale is that people were wanting to, uh, and, and some women especially, were wanting to take roles that weren't appropriate for them. For instance, wives acting like they didn't have husbands, dressing in ways that would invite, uh, I guess, the idea that they were on, uh, they were available for people to to uh, date and that sort of thing. And so I think there's also a cultural aspect going on here where now some of these Christian women, influenced by the culture of the time, aren't being modest in the way that they present themselves, perhaps even wives not really presenting themselves as wives, as people who are uh, taken, but rather as available. So they're coming and they're dressed with pearls and gold and all kinds of braided hair, and, and yet Paul's saying, listen, there's nothing wrong with makeup, there's nothing wrong with some nice clothes, and there's nothing wrong with, with uh, some pearls, but you can't dress in such a way that gives the impression that you're not who you are, that you are just part of the culture. Rather, for women, and that's why tense important, what's proper for women who profess godliness is to make yourself stand out, not by what you wear, but who you are, what you do with your good works, with your testimonies about Christ. Well, do you agree with that, or what do you think? Well, sure. Um, I mean, there, the, the scriptures weren't in a vacuum. They, they dealt with the real life uh, as they were written, and at the same time, they're transcendent. Uh, we have the same, same thing in our culture today. Um, probably, a, 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 I don't know if it'd be a, an exact translation on that verse, but it would it would read something like, I also want women to dress in good taste with modesty and sobriety. So sobriety not only entails the physical um, apparel, but also their attitude about who they are and, and who they're with. That's what the sobriety um, word wants to, to give forth. And so in, in whatever cultural context one finds themselves, they don't want to give the impression, as you said, to the world that they aren't who they are or that they um, are available to whom they're not. One of the ways in which this was misused in Luther's day, and he has some interesting writings on this, but he says that women ought to walk in a way that they may not offend someone with their adornment. And then he gives a German proverb, which I will not try to read in German, but it's translated, simple garb and adornment is more fitting for a woman than a wagon load of pearls. So there's this modesty that actually has some attractiveness. And then he, in Luther says, I do not want to interpret this too scrupulously, that is, that rich clothing is forbidden for women, and he gives the example of a, um, of, of a wedding. You know, He says here Paul is talking about a woman's everyday life. He condemns these women who parade in luxury, who wish to be dressed in the most beautiful clothing to allure lovers day after day, who go about every day as if it were Easter. Uh, so he, can't, he continues to go on, and, and while we're not going to get to this section— in the next section, it talks about overseers, and you brought up overseers, and you, uh, which in this biblical situation would be pastors, but you brought up the idea of district presidents. Well, in Luther's day, 
um, there was a translation or an understanding, I should say, of these texts where the uh, the bishops were to have the best of everything in contrast to others so that they could you know self-identify in their in their place. That's where they get this idea from, you know, the, the overseer must be must be you know clothed properly in contrast to the women here. Uh, so there is sort of a ranking that's happened even in wrong ways throughout history. But we see here that Paul, who's a, a proponent of the Christian belief that all people are equal before God, um, is talking about what is at the heart of what is being communicated by what you wear, not in a means to set yourself apart so that you can draw attention to yourself, but rather women, and I, and I would say this goes for men too, um, it's, it's good for us to profess who we are through our good work, not trying to draw attention to ourselves. What do you think, brother? Well, sure. Um... It, it is a mark of our of humanity that if someone is driving, say today, a uh, um, hundred and fifty thousand dollar vehicle and steps out of it with uh, the Armani suit and Gucci dress. I don't know clothes. I certainly don't have anything of that nature. But they get the attention compared to the person who pulls up in their. Um, 2004 Toyota Corolla, and while clean, is wearing clothes that are purchasable at, at Kohl's. And do we know the person's true identity by what we see? No, we don't. But that's <clears throat> that's oftentimes the extent to which the evaluation goes, and how sad that is, because who a person is, the ego of an individual, is their is their confession of faith and that confession of faith that exercises itself through what a person says and what they do within their given vocations. So I, I think that's probably in, entangled in that whole set of two verses. Well, let's add some more verses then so we can try to untangle it or maybe tangle it up a little more. I don't know, because in verse 11, 12, well, let's just do through the end of the chapter. Why not? Through 15. Here we go. He continues. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's all yours, brother. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, oh, I'll be here too. I was just joking. But no, what do you think of it? It, it is interesting that uh, verse 11 and 12 in the NIV translate the same word two different ways. In the use of the word, a woman should learn in, in quietness. That word in verse 12, when it says she must be silent, that's the same Greek word. And it's also the same word that's used in verse 2, that we may live peaceful or undisturbed and peaceable lives. So it's, it's uh, of, of those three uses of that one Greek word, it's not talking about button-lipped in the assembly. Obviously, women sing the hymns, they sing in the choir, they pray the prayers, they confess the creed, they sing the liturgy. Um, so it's not a button-lipped 
uh, element within the divine service that's being called for there. It's what's being called for is a a participation that is peaceableness, and I, and I don't even know if that's a word, um, but but is 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 in their in their life of being in full submission. And that's the word hippotasso used in Ephesians chapter five. In in and and there's where I think the best translation is um, in ranked relationship with uh, a wife is in a ranked relationship with her husband, just as the husband is in a ranked relationship with Christ. And uh, that that rank is for the for the the purpose of the of the word that seeks and saves the lost and feeds the found being received in its truth. As Paul says in verse seven, I'm telling you the truth. And for the truth to come to you, let's recognize our relationship with one another, particularly in that most intimate place that the truth comes to us. And it comes to us that way in divine service. And, um, so I mean that's that's where Jesus promised to be to be tangible for the church. Uh, he he might be everywhere, but we're not. We're 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 limited to our location as to where we stand and sit, and so that's where he comes to be, is where we stand and sit and kneel. And in that divine service, he has an order for the sake of receptivity. For the, for this for the sake of, of peacefulness of that receptivity, so when the law hits me, I'm quite restless, uh, and it hits me severe and hard, and it's right, and it's accurate, and so uh, what comes to bring me peacefulness is the gospel, and I'm I receive that as I'm ranked under Christ, and He gives to me that which I don't deserve. But he gives to me that which is um, the embodiment of grace, of, of gift. And I receive that peacefully, knowing who he is, why he is who he is, and what that does for me, both now and eternally. So there's an order in there that's just beneficial in understanding our rank. And in the divine service, God has two. Um, What's the word I want to look for? He has he has those who speak, and those who hear. Uh, Martin Chemnitz speaks about that in his uh, Loti, in that in the divine service there's the there's speaker or we call the preacher, and there's the hearer, which we would say is the laity. And that office that preaches is an office that belongs to Christ, and so he fills it. Uh, I was just at a call meeting yesterday, and it was Im- important to do a study as we went through that, that um, we're not going to be looking for the man that we want. We're going to be looking to see who God wants us to have. He sends the pastor to the place so that his word can be preached, and that's an authoritative word. Therefore, the office is an authoritative office. And uh, I know the ESV, I think that's what you read, it says um, doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Um, I, I really I really think a more accurate understanding is that, she, that 
she doesn't have that authority over the man. She doesn't have that office of Christ that preaches and teaches the word of God and administers the sacraments in that assembly, in that divine service. And so that is a testimony that our the office of the holy ministry is only to be filled by men. And um, God's the one that sends that man. And the congregation's the one that receives him. And the result of that is when he preaches and teaches, the laity receive that in a peacefulness way. And um, in the context of the relationship of a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband, uh, she's not to, to demonstrate in that assembly something that stands her over her husband any more than verse 9 and 10 would allow her to supersede his role in verse 8. And so um, it's not a condemnation of women in church, but it is a condemnation of those who claim that women can be pastors. And uh, this is a, a clear uh, clear passage that forbids that. And then the foundation by which Paul makes this statement isn't tied to the context of Ephesus or the context of Asia Minor in the late 60s AD. It's tied all the way back to the order of creation, verse 13. The reason for this ranking is because Adam was formed first. He was he was made first, and then Eve, and she was made from out of him, for him, for his sake, because without her, there would be no more of them. Uh, as he named the animals, he would have recognized there's a, a he and a she of, of each of them, and there would be more of them because of that, and there was only a he of, of him, which means there would be no one else. So what was her role as helpmeet uh, in various uh, aspects, but most importantly, so that there could be more of them as they are brought together in in holy matrimony. If you notice, if the first words spoken by man are wedding vows in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. And that is a, that is a, a, um, a, a law, I suppose, if, if we want to say that, because the law existed before the fall. It existed in from eternity, and it will exist into eternity. And with that, God established the relationship of wives to husbands, husbands to wives. And uh, then, of course, the in verse 14, the fall, um, it was not it was not Adam who who was deceived. Uh, it was um, it was Eve who was deceived, and the word there really says enticed, uh, tempted, works there, uh, led astray. It wasn't Adam who was led astray. It was Eve who was led astray, and that is a consequence of her having authority over Adam at that point in time. It's, it's always a mess. It, it's just it's just always a mess in the church when rank and order is turned upside down, and that's why we see in 
virtually all of the denominations ordain women a uh, in some some instances a rejection of the atonement of Christ in some instances an acceptance of other religions and other paths to God um, it, it's it's just a mess because it's a violation of God's holy word and so um, that that's an example of what happens uh, it says she became a a sinner which means uh, she stepped over the bounds uh parabasis is the greek word it means she she transgressed she she stepped over the rank and it created a mess and so um that had to be dealt with by genesis 3:15 the first gospel uh, one shall be one of a woman or of a woman who who uh crushes the head of satan and they were looking for that one ever since. And, of course, he arrived at the, at the right time, at the given time, proper time, as verse 6 says, and, uh, and completed our atonement and rescued us. And uh, what's the means by which we are then um, lifted out of that? It's through faith. And that's what verse 15 says. It, it says that, that, that the woman, the women there, um, will carry out their vocation, their greatest vocation before God and for the sake of their husbands to bear children, that, that through them, there will be more of them. And they continue in faith. Faith, of course, is the connective umbilical uh, between us and Christ uh, w- by which salvation is, is granted. And their lives are lived in love toward Christ Holiness, and once again, that word propriety, uh, sobriety, the proper attitude toward Christ, the proper attitude toward their husband, and which assists him in having his proper attitude toward Christ and his proper attitude toward his wife. And so that's that's kind of a, a lumping together of 11 through 15, but sure. I think that all has to be fully fully comprehended there. Yes. I mean, you know, I, it's interesting that this has been pretty much the position of the Church for a very long time, and only kind of relatively recently have we had some objections to these understandings. Uh, we have people who want to say, well, they're just cultural and historical situations in Ephesus, and it's just for a specific time. It's not supposed to establish guideline for Christian worship through all time and all all places, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of different um, approaches that people are taking that really aren't consistent with the way the church has always understood it. Um, and I do think that the she'll be saved through childbearing is a confusing one. The one that the way you took it is certainly the way that a lot of people nowadays took it. Luther took it a little differently, uh, but it's it's just interesting how we look at these texts and we wrestle with them. But we have to be reminded that all that we believe, teach and confess should not be governed by what our uh, modern culture is wanting, but rather under the uh, under the authority of the word of God. We are at the very, very bottom of the hour, so I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Brian Saunders, president of the Iowa District East of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you very much. Folks, join us tomorrow as we move into Chapter 3, an important section of Paul's letter here in which he outlines the qualifications of overseers, that is pastors, and deacons, uh, men preparing to be pastors. While the focus might be on the clergy ranks, it has a lot to say about every Christian, regardless of their vocation, so be sure to tune in.
Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. 